0: In Dublin, sometime in the early 1880s, on the last day of the month of March, a mother in child pain clenched her teeth, dug her knees home into the bed, sweated and panted, groaned and pressed and groaned and pressed and pressed a little boy out of her womb, down into a world that was filled with the needs, ambitions, desires and ignorance of others to be shoved aside, pressed back, beaten down by privileges carrying God-warrants of superiority. But the round-bellied, waggle-headed, lanky-legged, newborn latecomer kicked and cleared a patch of room for itself from the trampling feet and snapping hands around it.
1: This is the way Sean O'Casey opens his autobiography. The six volumes that make up the work are a mixture of fact and what you could call documentary fiction. In a sense, they are novels. O'Casey sometimes called them that. But novels or not, O'Casey clearly intended us to take them as giving a truthful picture of his life as he himself saw it. The most vivid part of the picture is that of the hardship and poverty of his later childhood and youth. Now, some time ago, a Dublin journalist published an essay in which he alleged that O'Casey's yarns about his hard times were a tissue of lies. Naturally, this attack on the honour and truthfulness of the recently dead O'Casey got a lot of local publicity. Some other journalists and columnists seemed curiously ready to accept the allegation without scrutinising the evidence. And that evidence doesn't bear scrutiny. For instance, it's denied that Sean O'Casey ever lived in a tenement. But you need only look up Tom's street directory to find that it classifies two of O'Casey's dwelling places as tenements at the time he was living in them. However, we don't have to depend solely upon official records to verify O'Casey's picture of his childhood and youth, and his portraits of his relations. Although O'Casey died four years ago at the age of nearly 85, there are still alive, and very much alert, men and women who were in their teens when O'Casey was in his twenties, who knew him as a private man, long before he was a public figure. We've recorded the memories some of these people have of the young Sean O'Casey in the Dublin of over half a century ago, and their memories of his mother, his sister, and, above all, his elder brother, Mick. In fact, what you're going to hear will be largely a tale of two brothers, but first, Sean himself. In the early days of this century... Sean and his mother and his brother Mick were living in two little rooms at the top of a house in Abercorn Road in Dublin's Dockland. It's a small house, and none of the upstairs lodgers would have had room to swing a cat if they'd so desired. Katie Butler, whose name will be familiar to readers of the autobiographies, was a girl in those days, and living in that house. And she's still living there now, a widow, Mrs. Catherine Kennar. Gaelic enthusiasm, may appear somewhat unusual in a family that was staunchly Protestant. It's true that O'Casey's father, Michael, had a certain independence of mind if we're to trust what his son says. But one must remember that the father died when Sean was only six. Therefore, Sean's recollections of him must have been more shadowy than the vivid word-painting of the autobiographies would imply. Now, the family didn't live in a fetid slum when the father was alive. They lived in a house in Dorset Street... And they weren't too badly off, because the father was bringing home two pounds a week from his job as a clerk, and two pounds a week in the 1880s was roughly the equivalent of twenty pounds today. But when Sean was about five, his father fell and injured his spine. The injury was disabling and permanent. The job as a clerk was either lost or given up. The family had to move to a smaller and cheaper house, beginning its downward move in the social scale. Their new home was Number Nine Innes Fallon Parade, not far from their home in Dorset Street, and something of the old comfort. At any rate, some of the outward appearances of it were maintained, perhaps only from force of habit. Sean describes in his autobiographies the parlor in Innesfallon
0: Parade, the room with a horsehair-covered furniture, the polished mahogany cabinet, dainty little brackets supported by little pillars decorated with mirrors that was called an overmantle. A crew-laced curtains girded in the middle with crimson knitted cords. On a little table by the window, a large bowl filled with clean water in which floated a coloured glass mermaid. On the wall, a big picture of Lord Nelson bound for Trafalgar's Bay. Facing Nelson on the opposite wall was a picture of Queen Victoria all decked out in her coronation robes, with none of the fun but all of the pomp, power, wealth and parade of her colonial and Indian empire peering out of her bulgy blue eyes. What better picture could you get of
1: solid, lower-middle-class Irish home of the 1880s? And if those pictures of Queen Victoria signify what we think they do, Sean's father was no rip-roaring Irish Republican. With his clerical job gone, poor Michael was obliged to earn his living as a jobbing gardener. He got a certain amount of work in Mountjoy Square, which was then one of the poshest residential areas in Dublin. But a man with spinal disease and dropsy isn't going to make a very active gardener, and towards the end, Michael must have been living either upon his savings or upon contributions from his older sons, who had started work. When Sean was about six years of age, he was wakened one morning and brought into the parlour. It had become his father's death-room.
0: Stretched out he lay, his firmly closed eyes staring backwards, arms and hands lying straight down by his sides, nicely folded up for heaven beneath a snowy sheet. Cold, stiff, and quiet the thing lay, while life outside hurried about, settling everything for it, going to leave an order for an open grave, selecting the coffin heavy oak with heavy brass plate and handles, hiring a four-horsed hearse. To the purchase of
2: one grave in Mount Jerome Cemetery, two pounds, for the interment of Michael Casey, late of nine Innes Fallon Parade, Dublin, Deceased, 6th September, 1886. Aged, 49. Cause of death? Disease
1: of the spine. Poor Michael had been a long time a-dying. Sean tells us so. And we have one significant pointer to the state of affairs. Michael died in September. His wife bought the grave for him six months before that. Michael left a widow, Susan, four sons and one daughter. Sean was the last of 13 children Susan Casey had borne.
0: Forty years of age the woman was when the boy was three, with hair still raven black, parted particularly down the middle of the head, gathered behind in a simple coil, and kept together with a couple of hairpins. A small nose, spreading a little at the bottom, Deeply set, softly gleaming brown eyes that sparkled when she laughed and hardened to a steady glow through any sorrow, deep and irremediable. Eyes that, when steadily watched, seemed to hide in their deeps an intense glow of many dreams. But it was the mouth that arrested attention most. It quivered with fighting perseverance, firmness, human humour, and the gentle, lovable fullness of her nature. A sturdy figure carried gracefully and with resolution, flexible, at peace in its simple gown of black serge, with its tiny white frill around the neck that was fair and unwrinkled still. A laugh that began in a ripple of humour and ended in a musical torrent of full-toned mirth which shook those who listened into an irresistible companionship. A loving portrait.
1: At his father's death... Sean was six years old, puny, with festering eyes that were already giving the trouble that was to remain with him all his life. On the day of the funeral, proud of his importance as a chief mourner, he stood beside the hearse.
0: Stretching out a hand timorously, he stroked the haunch of the nearest horse. The animal gave a shuddering start and kicked viciously, making the hearse <coughs> shake.
3: Gah, you mischievous <coughs> bastard! Gah, that! Leave the animal alone. Or I'll go over and kick the little backside off you.
4: And serve him right if you did. Your mother'll have a handful in you when you grow up, me boy.
3: Get up there. Up! Oh, we'll never make Mount Jerome at this rate. Oh, but last night, 15 points between 8 and 11. I wouldn't ask Anton better, even on the night of me first daughter's wedding. We got home, we got home, but it took two hours to do it. Where it should have taken only 20 minutes. Two solid hours of mighty striving. But we done it in the end. We got home...
1: Home, for the young O'Casey, was to be an even smaller and cheaper house in which his widowed mother lived as best she could on the earnings of her daughter, Bella, who was a very poorly paid teacher, and on such small sums as her grown-up sons allowed her. But the little group around Susan Casey soon dwindled. One son, with the resounding name Isaac Archer Casey, emigrated with his family to England, Presently, the daughter, Bella, was to get married to one of Queen Victoria's soldiers, Private Beaver. Another son, Tom, died. And Susan was left with just herself and Sean, with prolonged visits from another son, twelve years older than Sean, and also one of Her Majesty's soldiers. This was Mick.
3: When Johnny comes marching home again, a-ro, when Johnny comes marching home again, hurrah, hurrah!
1: Mick was the only one of his brothers that Sean got to know really well. He didn't like Mick. Mick didn't like him either. But I don't think that Mick's feeling was as deep-rooted as Sean's. I suspect that Mick, like so many who are hail-fellow well-met, had no deep feelings for anything or anybody. Readers of the autobiographies who fall under the spell of Sean's powers of portraiture will tend to view the two brothers in the roles of saint and sinner. But let's not forget that it was Saint Sean who, like God, wrote all the books. The great wide world remembers Sean with admiration as one of the founding fathers of the modern theatre. But it is Mick who was remembered with affection in the lesser world centred in Abercorn Road in Dublin's Dockland, the world of Joxer and Fluther, of Juno and her ungallant captain.
5: The violets were scenting the woods, Nora, displaying their charms to the bees. When I first said I loved only you, Nora, and you said you loved only me. The chestnut blooms gleamed in the glade. Nora, a robin sang loud from a tree. When I first said I loved only you, Nora, and you said you loved. The birds in the tree sang a song, Nora, Of happier transports to be When I first said I loved only you, Nora And you said you loved only
1: Now, what sort of impression did the young Sean O'Casey make on the neighbours? This is how he appeared to the young Katie Butler 70 years ago when he and his mother and brother lodged with Katie Butler's family in 18 Abercorn Road, Dublin.
6: Oh, my goodness. He was... Now, he was like an old man of 80. Don't you know, Mm -hmm. you saw him when he was lately there in papers. Yes. Well, he wasn't much better. Low shoulders, terrible small, beady eyes, always saw, and nearly he couldn't hardly see. he wouldn't sound, but tall, you know, but bent, very uh, no coat on him, never stylish. You wouldn't say this was a nicely dressed now, he was really very shabby because he'd no means to get anything
1: had he no job
6: well, the midland
1: the the railway
6: the railway, yeah I we called it the Midland, you know.
1: What job had he got on that?
6: Well, he used to go round now, like, doing different jobs around the voters. He didn't drive or went anything. He might have took off goods off the railway or something like that. A labourer? A labourer, that's the, uh, that's the difference now. The labourer, mm-hmm. that's all.
1: You wouldn't describe Sean as a good-looking man?
6: Well, I would definitely not now. I would really not like him, to be... To say he was good-looking, and we really wasn't, because he had a face this... Well, he was a gentleman in his own way, you know what I mean? Nice and quiet and all that. Nice man, but he wasn't pretty good, you know.
1: Did you ever think of casting an eye on Sean O'Casey? I'll
6: oh, forgive you. <laughs> Lord in heaven, a child. Oh, no, I couldn't. We're about the one age, of course. But still, I couldn't realise him. I went to be so had me own by-friend. Did I he? married my own, boyfriend. friend.
1: Did Sean cast an eye at you? Do you ah,
6: think? Ah no, oh no.
1: Was he a man for the woman at all? No,
6: no. Never looked at no. a girl. No. Are you sure about that? I did. I never knew how, Missus uh, Miss Clary uh, Clary married him. Really. No. no, so. He must have married. she must have married him for his talent or something.
1: Now, a man's view. John Leach was another of the neighbours in Abercorn Road. He was a boy round about 1910, and this is his memory of the young O'Casey.
3: He was uh, very thin, from which describer as miserable-looking, with uh, peculiar feet. Not club feet, but something of that nature. And I wouldn't say there was a form, but there was peculiar. And he always wore the hobnail boots... Did
1: Sean ever chase you away from him or anything
3: like that? Well, he often lifted the window and roared out at me. When he disturbed, when he was playing the chanter, the bagpipes used to walk up and down the room playing the chanter. He studied music or not, I don't know, but he <clears throat> we were making a noise outside. He'd shout at us, <clears throat> clear away. Just
1: clear away? Oh, yes, well, he might have said something else, but forget it. <laughs> Did you ever think of him as a great man? No. Would you say that he was a great man? Well, no, I would, yes. Were you surprised when you found out later on that Sean O'Casey had become famous? I was amazed, yes, yes. Amazed. Why? Well, to no, know that of his
3: as I knew him, a very humble type of man, and casual worker, and a bit odd in his way that he could be able to put... The, Put these ideas of his on paper and write them into a play to be played on the Abbey stage. How I always regard him as a crank. That's my boyhood impression of him and I don't think I do see any reason to
1: change it now. Did you like him? No. Around the corner from Abercorn Road lives Mrs. Beaver. Mrs. Beaver is the widow of Sean O'Casey's nephew, Uh, That would be Bella's son. When Bella died, Sean took charge of the lad, brought him in and gave him a home. Naturally, the nephew read the autobiographies.
7: He had a good laugh at
8: them. He had. Why? At the the ridiculousness of them.
1: Is that so? Mm -hmm. In what way were they ridiculous?
8: Well, to him they were ridiculous because he knew to the
1: differ.
8: That some of the things he said in them wasn't right. For example... Well, he spoke about the poverty and the family and that, and about his own mother being evicted from our ho- home, he did. And his, my husband's mother li- lived round the back from where I live,
1: and, and she was... died there mm-hmm. in that house. Your husband didn't think that the Ocasies were as poor as Sean made them out to be?
8: No, they were
1: not Were they well-to-do? Well,
8: they were in their early life now, but not when he lived with them. I mean, they weren't what you might call very well off, but they were comfortable.
1: Could you guess how much Sean O'Casey's father earned?
8: No, I couldn't say. Your husband
1: didn't know about this?
8: Well, if he did, he never spoke to me about it, but he always said he had a good job. In a way, I think my husband was a bit like Sean O'Casey himself. And one thing about my husband, anyone that ever done him an injury or a hurt, he found it very hard to forgive them like Sean
1: O'Casey, there a bit. And, Mrs. Beaver, you knew Sean O'Casey's brother, Mick. Yes, I did. Oh, tell us what you remember about Mick.
8: Well, he was a very comical man. Who, I mean, by comical, I mean that he was really always in good humour. And very... He was a very well-educated man, he was. And uh, he used to do a lot of drawing and sketching. And now if he was sitting in a chair like that gentleman there he could sketch you just as you're sitting down there now.
1: Did he ever sketch you?
8: He did, yes, indeed. <laughs> and
1: Many did, a times. <laughs> and what did you do with the drawings?
8: Oh I just I think lost them and that. I never bothered
1: at the time. Did Mick drink?
8: He did, yes.
1: Now was he a heavy drinker?
8: Well I believe he was in his early life, but when I knew him he wasn't a what you might call a heavy drinker. I can safely say I've never seen Mick drunk in my life.
1: Now, Danny Burke knew Mick very well. He'd never refused to drink,
2: and he'd always remark, like, oh, in the good old days, I remember with your father, and I remember with Katie and that, when it was only pence a pint." And I think then, I didn't see him then, but I'm sure he drank an awful lot.
1: In his later days,
2: did he drink an awful lot? Well, there again, you see, he hadn't got the money to drink. He was poor Mick, like, we used to call him poor Mick. In fact, all my family used to call him, there's poor Mick homeboy. And uh, I'd knock at the wind and he'd come over and have a bit of a chat. And if I had anything at all to give him, he was great. He was delighted. My mother knew him very well. And, but everybody on the road knew him as old Mick. Here's old Mick down along. Did you ever see him really incapable from drink? Well, once I gave him a hand home. He was really bad. I think there was a wedding or something in the family. Some relation of his was having to get married and he left the wedding party and went off on his own and i met him on the road and well i had to give him a hand home but he was he knew where he was going all right like you know but he was under the weather all right what did mick look like mick was i'd say the opposite of sean he was stoutish wasn't anyway stooped at all a sturdy man a great character and in the latter years He grew a beard, a big grey beard. When I knew him first, as a very small boy. He had a black moustache, turning grey. And then later on in years, when he moved up, as a coincidence, he moved up to uh, Ellenfield Road, where I lived at the time, and uh, he had
1: a big grey beard then. There are O'Caseys still living at Ellenfield Road, a second, third and even fourth generation of them. Marriage has changed their names... And now Sean O'Casey's niece is...
4: Mrs. Isabella Murphy.
1: And you are the daughter of... Isabella. Isabella, who was Sean O'Casey's sister. sister. That's right. By the way, you look remarkably like Sean O'Casey.
4: Well, I've been told that by a lot. I don't know whether I do or not, but... I was like his mother, they said, when I was young, but course I've got like him now.
1: Dare one ask how old you are?
4: I'm 73.
1: But, well, you don't look as on. you're very spry for your age, oh, if I may yeah. say so.
4: <laughs> Little bit of me there, yes. Yes. Did you ever meet Sean O'Casey? Certainly, I did. And my husband also. I lived with him. Slept with him. Oh, that doesn't mean anything, I was only a kid. And uh, I watched my grandmother for him, you see. I stayed in the house and watched granny. To be with her when he'd go out in the evening. And then when I went to work, a brother of mine, Sean Beaver, took over. How old were you when you first knew Sean O'Casey? Oh, well, I was born in where he lived, in Harton Terrace. See, Mammy and Granny lived together in a house in Heartland Terrace. And I was born in 25 harton Terrace. And Uncle Jack was only... He was a young boy. I noticed you called him Uncle Jack. Yes, we, I never called him anything else. Never. Yeah. <coughs> Sorry. No. You see, we always called him Uncle Jack. Because some the people used to call him always Sean. So we always called him Uncle Jack. I did, anyway.
1: What did his mother call him? Johnny. What was Sean like in those early days?
4: Well, he was a young man. I remember him as a, when he grew to be a young man and he'd be very quiet in the house. He was good-looking, only for his eyes was a bit tender, like, you know. But he was, you'd never hear him in the house, only when he'd be shaving or washing himself, and then he'd be singing Irish songs all the time.
1: It had Sean a nice voice, a nice singing lovely, voice?
4: A lovely voice when he was young. And I heard him here on uh, the BBC, and he, he sang a song, and I thought he was very good for his age. Mm-hmm. He sang uh, Waiting at the Gate for Kate. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. And he was very nice for his age. I thought he was great. He was a lovely speaker, a beautiful speaker, because he used to stay in the standard hotel when he came over here. And I had a daughter who was a receptionist there for the visitors. And she made herself known to him, and she said he speaks beautiful. And he was delighted with him. He said she wasn't to stay there, she was to try and get on, you know. Did she? She died, God help her, at 26. She was lovely. I had a lovely letter from her when she died, too. His brother Michael died the 11th, and she died the 12th. And I kept. I, his brother lived with me here, you know. You didn't know that. I'm speaking very Dublin English. No, no. Um, his brother Michael. You haven't heard about Michael, did you? Well, he, when I got this house, I put him for this house when the children were young. And I told him don't come to get about it, because he used to come into to my place for his food. And I said, Yeah, I'm willing to keep you if you come, but so you would rather stay where you are you can So he came and he was twelve years with me.
1: What sort of man was Michael?
4: One of the best men you ever got speak to, to. A well educated man. He drank but we all have a false there, have we? I haven't, anyway, but that's no fault. Sure, it's not. Not unless you go Out and out. But he drank, but he'd a heart of gold.
1: Now, tell me, did Uncle Mick drink very hard?
4: I wouldn't say he did. He was easy knocked off. I wouldn't say he drank. His brother Tom drank worse. His brother Tom drank terrible. And poor Mick got the, the name. He was a terrible drunkard. And that had knocked Mick off. A pint or two? Yes.
1: Did you ever see him incapable?
4: I often found him drunk coming into Granny and singing. How did? And he used to annoy... <coughs> he used to annoy Uncle Jack. Because of the bottle of stout. He'd follow Jack round the room and he'd say, That'll do you good. Get that into you. Now, Jack hated... Hated drink. And that's the kind of man he was. He'd love you to... Take everything, you know. Good-natured
1: good man. Uh, Mick would love you to take everything.
4: Yes. Very good-natured man he was.
1: Uh, Did he fight with your Uncle Jack?
4: I believe they had a row, and that's why Uncle Jack left. I never knew that, and I lived in Mrs. Beaver's house at the time. And I never knew he had a row, and he never told me.
1: Did Uncle Mick ever talk about Sean?
4: Oh, very often. Very often. What did he say? Do you see, he used to send him an odd pound, you know. Uncle Jack, yes. And he'd he'd say when he'd get that, well, he's not bad, he's a great fella. He is, as I remember you, and all the he used to give him, you know, jesting him, And he used to write lovely letters to him, telling him about his family and his wife. What did
1: your Uncle Jack uh, say about Mick?
4: Well, he used to be disgusted sometimes with Mick, the drink. He hated the drink. And he used to be disgusted with how Mick would be sing loud and everything when he come in, you know, sing a song and all like that. He was, he was a quiet man. I think he always wanted to be very quiet.
1: And Mick was a bit rowdy.
4: He was, but no, he was good. Because I heard him saying to Uncle "Oh, I better not say this. I won't. Because I'm your ass, I will say nothing, I'd be pulled up.
1: Not at all. You don't, you can say this because... Uh... We, we won't <clears throat> be broadcasting as if it's uh, something which He's shouldn't be broadcasting. Oh,
4: yes. Well, I remember that when he was in there as Republican Brotherhood, Uncle Jack, you know he was in that. I heard Mick telling him one night that he sold his freedom. And he said he didn't. Do you see, Mick was a soldier. And, of course, Uncle Jack was a... Sinn Féinor. How did
1: uh, your uncle Mick get on with his mother?
4: Well, liked that very well. The only thing was, when he'd come home on late, she'd always have to get money and give it to him going back. He never had a penny. And she didn't like that, you know, because it was tormenting her. But they never had a row or anything. I never remember anything like that.
1: Was she fond of him? Well,
4: oh, yes, she was. But her favourite was Tom. Uh,
1: how do you know that?
4: Sean O'Casey has it in one of his books. And I always knew she thought much of him because she used to always say he's a lovely man.
1: Tom. Tom. What did uh, Sean's mother think of him?
4: Of Tom? Uh, No,
1: of Sean himself. What did your granny...
4: Granny used to say he'd be prime minister someday. Or he'd be something great. She always left that out for him. That he would really be something great. Someday. She used to tell us that. You
1: saw him writing? Yes. Uh, Did you think that he'd be a great man?
4: Well, to tell you the truth, I always used to be wondering what he was writing. I used to go for his coloured inks, and I used to get them in a chemist at the Theatre Royal there. And I used to see pages upon pages at fool's Cap, and he'd have wrote them all. Well, if any go over them, some words he'd do in purple, some words he'd cross out in green. I was always... Interested in that, and I used to be afraid to ask him what he did for the different things. You know, but he was always writing. <coughs> always writing, bent over the table writing. I don't know how he did it.
1: What time did he get up in the mornings?
4: Well, when he was awoken, he was up early enough. Other mornings about. i say it was nine o'clock. What time did he go to bed at night? Very late. He used not come in too late, you see. And she, Granny used to say to him, Oh, John, you'll be killed some night. It's too late to be coming home. And he used to always carry a, a hurdle on his shoulder.
1: Would you describe uh, your Uncle Jack as a hearty eater?
4: Well, no, it wasn't everything he ate. I tell you what, she used to always have to have, Granny, hot scones for his tea. He was very fond of those, hot scones. And he'd like a supper soup. And he'd also like white fish, such as cod or whiting, done in milk, butter,
1: and onion. Oh, that's a real old Dublin is. dish, yes. isn't
4: it? It is, indeed. Yeah. Uh, yes. They were
1: very poor in those days, weren't they?
4: Well, I wouldn't say they were poor. They weren't, you know, pulp or so, here some people talking about be think they never had done anything. I wouldn't, really. They had a nice home, a good home, and he always had three meals a day and clothes on him? They hadn't any money in the bank of that. You see, the way it was, when grandad died, his money was nearly all gone, he was so long sick. And when he died, Tom and Michael joined the army. And only left him was Isaac Walking. Well then they had to take a smaller house. They sold that big house in Dorset Street, which they owned and they sold that They sold the library belonging to my granddad. My mother kept a few of the books. And they sold a piano. A lot of things like that. They moved to Hawthorne Terrace.
1: Now, tell me more about Mick. Um...
4: Fifteen lives, he saved. And they'd always run to know where Michael Casey was. And you'd see him, I believe, running down the side of the canal, just pulling off his tie and his boots and jumping in.
1: Now, cast your mind back to your granny's death. That's Sean's mother's death. Tell us all about it.
4: Well, Granny was sick, you see, and uh, we got the doctor for her, and he said that he didn't think she'd do. He told the and Uncle Jack got nervous, and I said she'd be all right, and I'll come up every day. I said, and I'll get you your messages and look after Graham and she was getting weaker but he didn't know that she was that bad till I went in that morning and I was only young and I said I think Gran is dying her feet are cold." and he said no well say I'll run out up to the shop and I'll get a sip of whiskey and say it might make her a bit warmer and when I came back she was just went off like a board
1: so that Sean was the only person in the room when she died
4: yes I know of, now he was. He called up Katie Butler afterwards, I think. That's the lady that lived in the house. I think he called her up after. And she wanted to come round for, for the girls, he said. Well, no, I had been there. And I don't know how that could be said. Because I was there. And Paddy, my husband, went out with him and done all the funeral arrangements.
1: Can you remember, was there any trouble... With the undertaker's men over money at your grandmother's funeral?
4: Not grandmother's, mother's. Not at my grandmother's at all. There was over my mother. My mother had six policies lapsed on her. And she wasn't in a penny society when she died. Not one penny. And you see, Uncle Jack made up some money. And he gave the herdsman that money because he knew they would be fighting over it. They used to have that time, not like now. they a bit decent now. But longer they used to. You see, she lost a lot in me, Mammy, when your daddy died and had to go out and work hard. Scrubbing houses and I scrubbed them with her. And I was very young.
1: But could you not get some relief?
4: She didn't go. Uncle Jack said he'd, he'd disown her. He if said if you'd go for that charity and that I'll disown you. So she And she didn't go. She went out to walk. And she used to scrub house for a Mr. Irvine. And I used to help her. I was only ten years old about it, I was that. And she was doing money well, that way. And then she went to she gave up that and then Mrs. Keating, she's dead and buried now, took her in as a kook. Now she knew the Keatings well, so did I. And uh, she got more money there. And, and then when I went to work, it was great. We got a little house of our own next door to where we lived. And we got along fine there.
1: Where, how old was your mother when she died? 52. What happened to her?
4: I think it was rheumatism in her head. Because she always had her head bandaged up. And uh, at night times she'd cry with her head, moan. With the pain in her head. But That's what I took her to be. Rheumatism. That's what she told me. What happened to your father? He was supposed to fall at Hutton's. Did I tell you that? No, you didn't. I told someone, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, he was supposed to fall outside Hutton's. Now, do you remember me telling you that? You knew Hutton's, the coachmakers. Mm -hmm. And he split his head open. And he lay there for three hours and he had a bad hemorrhage from it. And I think he was brought to the Richmond. But I remember going up to see him. A lot of people said he died in the madhouse. I heard that. And I went mad. I never remember him being there. And then they said, Uncle Jack said, in one of his books, that me daddy used to to me mammy. I never saw him raising his hand to him. Never. I didn't. And then we lived in a lovely little house. In Rutland Place at the time, he worked on the railway. He was over the parcel office in the Great Northern. I don't know; I, don't know, I would have got them yards at all. That's my opinion, of him anyway.
1: Have you read Sean O'Casey's autobiographies? I
4: am reading it. Yes, i read a lot of them. And um,
1: what do you think of them?
4: Well, uh, some of them are untrue. Some of the things he said. For example? For example, he said that um, two, the two young girls were standing in the room and he went round to bury Bella. I was a married woman. With one baby. My sister was married. He mixed that up, you see. It it must have been mixed up or else he just put it that way.
1: Well, he seems to have mixed up the s- trouble with the undertakers at his mother's funeral. Yes, I said that. At, at your,
2: at it your was place. at
4: Mammy's funeral, that was, because there was no money. Because it was really hard to live that time, and she would six children and no relief. Mm-hmm. Had to go for every penny, and I wasn't old enough to go to work. But when I became 14, I said I wasn't going to stay there. I went out to work. What did you work at? I worked in Peel Riley's, the boxmakers. And I was four women in there. I got four women in there. And my daughter got four women after me. And my granddad, I've got charge, and like oh. the three of them in it. Now, and that's a good record.
1: Splendid. That's right. Have you? Did you see many of your uncle's plays?
4: Yes, I did. And I give you a laugh. I brought Uncle Mick to a few of them. And Uncle Mick, when we got in, he chipped me and he say, "If they knew who we were, if they knew who I was." Now, and I say, no, no. Uncle Mick, don't say anything. We never told anyone, but we were there.
1: Uh, why didn't you want to tell anybody?
4: I, I don't know. You know I, I think we'd be posting on, you know, something like that. We're, we're very backward like, you know. And I saw Plough of the Stars, Shadow of a Gunman, The Silver Tassie. I could have killed the Abbey for refusing that. It was a lovely play. I, I enjoyed it, fine. And um, I saw another one too Juno. Oh, Juno and the Pay Car. Love that
1: lovely. Do you think that mm. your uncle put any members of the family into his plays?
4: Yes. He had a, a brother-in-law of mine, up. <coughs> he used to be always talking about the stars and everything. Do you remember Jockson did, of did I do. Of yeah. course.
1: And what yes. was this brother-in-law's name? William Ellis. He's dead now. Ellis? Uh, Ellis. Elliot, Elliot yes. Elliot. And what was he in life?
4: He was, he worked on the deep sea vessels. He was there, uh, he always put up to be a communist, a Russian fella, you know. He was always going on like that, instead.
1: And uh, did Sean make it a very true portrait of your brother? Uh, and yes,
4: son? yes, indeed, in some of the sayings he did, yeah.
1: Tell us as much as you can about he it. He
4: did, about the time that he was looking at the stars and... What's the cell she said there? I asked myself... Yes, yes, you? <laughs> he used to talk yes. like that. But it, it wasn't Joxer who said that, it was well, Captain Boyle. Oh, we said Captain Boyle was Uncle Mick. Because that's the way he used to say to Granny, if he came in and bad you and say, I don't want me, dinner. Just, yeah, I didn't saying, you can keep your sausages, you remember?
1: Yes. Yeah. So you think Uncle Mick was I Captain I always Boyle. say
4: Captain Boyle was Uncle Mick. I do... Uh, I might be wrong.
1: I'd like to hear a little more about Joxer. Uh, what was this brother-in-law of yours like in appearance? He
4: was a tall, thin man, fair. Fair, but always had uh, a lot of himself. He, he, was, he knew the way the world would be wrong. He could run the world, you know, a fella like that. Tom with war and what was going to happen and what Russia'd do. He was always on Russia. Yes.
1: Do you think that Sean put his own mother into the plays? Juno, for instance...
4: I wouldn't say it'd be Juno. Although she used to say, you've done enough for Ireland to Uncle Jack. I haven't heard her saying that. There was such a nice characters in that. That woman, uh, May Craig, that said, uh, oh Lord, take away our hearts of stone. You remember that? I and mean, my grandmother used to say things like that too. Say, used to say the people are too hard. That
1: was Isabella Murphy, the daughter of Sean's sister, Isabella. And now, an Isabella of the third generation. Isabella Jennings. And would she describe Uncle Mick as a heavy drinker?
7: Not well, I knew him. He took his odd pint of a Sunday. that was all. I never saw Mick drunk in my life. And I knew him since I was a kiddie. I never saw him really drunk. I've seen men drunk, but I've never seen Uncle Mick drunk.
1: Did he talk about Sean? He did. What did he say?
7: The big fella he called him.
1: Uh, can you remember anything else that he said?
7: I used to say, oh, he's getting in a queer bit of money. He's making a queer bit. I wish he he'd quid? send me a few quid. And when he'd send him the pound, he'd say, more poetry, Jack. Send me another next time.
1: Do you think that he disliked uh, his brother?
7: No. He used to say he always got a bit of fun out of him. Fun out of the tricks he'd play on him. For example? Well, he used to tell us, I don't know whether it was true or not, what? but he used to tell us he burst the bagpipes on him once. Mm-hmm. He used to march around the table, I believe, playing the bagpipes. And it got on Mick's nerves this night. He must have had a few jars on him. And he got a hold of the bagpipes when Sean wasn't looking and put a nail in the bag. And this is what Mick told us. I don't know how true it is. Sweet. And, uh... When Sean went next to the bagpipes, he was blown and blown, and he couldn't get a note, out. he was red in the face. He didn't know what happened, and Mick was sitting laughing behind his back.
1: That little anecdote told by Isabella Jennings about her uncle Mick and the one she now tells surely throw a very revealing light on his character.
7: I had a little girl, and she was about four at the time, and uh, every day you when know, he'd come home from the shops, he'd bring her something home, and he'd play a game in her every day, He'd have an orange in one pocket for her. But first of all, he'd say, stand over there. And when she stand over, be the one. He'd throw, supposed to be the orange, but a turnip would roll over to her and he'd get the turnip back from the little one. You know, she used to be disgusted. Well, he used to stand and laugh at the disappointment on her face, but she'd get her orange afterwards. He was forever playing tricks, you
1: know. From the lawyer's point of view... We've had, I suppose, a lot of conflicting evidence... from the tellers of the tale of the two brothers, Sean and Mick. You can expect differences in matters of opinion. For instance, was Uncle Mick a sponger and a boozer? Or was he a jolly old ex-soldier... with such a delicate constitution... that he could be half-jarred after the odd Sunday afternoon pint? But we've also had conflicts upon what should be matters of fact. For instance, the personal appearance of the two brothers. Yet, when all is said and done... Surely out of these memories by Dublin men and women who knew the two brothers, memories extending over 70 years, surely out of these memories, conflicts and all, there emerge two very human and very believable portraits. The rest of the tale of Sean and Mick is soon told. Sean O'Casey died in Torquay, in Devon, in an ambulance on his way to hospital after a heart attack, his hand in the hand of a loving and beloved wife. And he was mourned in the world of the theatre and of letters, although there were very few mourners at the actual funeral. There were very few mourners at Mick's funeral either. Mick died in the Dublin poorhouse and he was buried in the family grave in Mount Jerome. And now, one last reminiscence about Sean from his sister Bella's daughter, Bella.
4: Uncle Jack danced orange, great. And I went with him to a few of his clubs a couple of times and it was all Irish dancing was done and Irish singing. So it was lovely. And I was only about 12.
1: Did you hear him play the bagpipes?
4: Often. And often looked at him going from one room into another playing. he played them lovely.
1: What Hmm. sort of tunes did he play?
4: All Irish. All Irish tunes. He learned us a little bit of Irish when we were young, you know.
1: Can you remember any of it?
4: Kind of start here. I'll make them up. And a few other little bits, you know do I I'd be cutting them here with it. <laughs>
0: In Dublin, sometime in the early 1880s, on the last day of the month of March, a mother in child pain clenched her teeth, dug her knees home into the bed, sweated and panted, groaned and pressed and groaned and pressed and pressed a little boy out of her womb, down into a world that was filled with the needs, ambitions, desires and ignorance of others to be shoved aside, pressed back, beaten down by privileges carrying God-warrants of...